Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. If you are happening to be listening to this on the week this comes out, we are in the midst of our 2019-2020 Junior Fellows Program. If you check out our Facebook and Twitter pages, you can follow along with photos from the week, along with quotes and a look into the worship and the psalms that we're singing. In this episode of the podcast, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jim Jordan are going to answer a few questions. We have set up a Curious Cat account, which I have linked down there in the show notes for you, where you can leave a question to be answered on future episodes. And here, they're going to be discussing three questions. They'll begin with a very interesting question on why the Israelites were not circumcised until Joshua 5. They'll answer a question about leprosy. And finally, they'll mull over a question about whether David and Goliath parallels Jesus versus the strong man. We want to thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy listening in on this Q&A session. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James Jordan. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and also with James Jordan. Good to have you back, Jim. Thank you for uh, coming to join us with the podcast. Uh, Brian Motes is here, also keeping us on track and uh, making sure that we actually get recorded. And uh, what we say during the next 45 minutes gets out to you, our listening audience. Uh, As we have often done, well, periodically done, uh, we are doing a a question and answer session today. Um, You can submit questions to a Curious Cat account, which I'm sure will be linked somehow in the program notes for this episode, so you can find how to do that. And a number of you have posted uh, questions for our Theopolis podcast, also questions to Alistair on his podcast. We don't get through many of them in a typical Q&A episode, but uh, we'll, we'll try to tackle several of them. So let's get right into it. We'll try to cover so, several of the ones that were submitted over the last month or so. Uh, the first has to do with circumcision uh, and Israel's sojourn in the wilderness. And the question is, is there a theological reason behind why the Israelites were not circumcised in the wilderness until Joshua 5? The question is indicated, talking about the early chapters of Joshua, Israel comes out of the wilderness after their roughly 40 years of sojourning after the Exodus, and uh, they have to be uh, circumcised after they have crossed over the Jordan and into the land. They have not been circumcised during their time in the wilderness. So the question is, what's the rationale for that? Why would there not be circumcision in the wilderness? And just as a, just to kick us off, we can notice an, a, at least some kind of parallel with what happens in Exodus 4 with uh, Moses re-entering uh, the land of Goshen after he's been up in Midian. He's coming back from a sojourn with uh, Jethro. He's married, and he's coming back with his son Gershom. And on the way back, the Lord meets him at a lodging place, and uh, it's because the uh, Gershom had not been circumcised. Exodus 4.24, it came about at the lodging place on the way that Yahweh met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet and said, you're indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. We could spend some time going into that. Jim has a, a great appendix, I think, to the Law of the Covenant that uh, deals with that passage 
and describes it as a protological Passover. As Moses re-enters the land, he has to go through an event that's Passover-like in order to save his son. There's a shedding of blood in order to save the son that's a, an anticipation of Passover. But the point I want to make is simply you have this border crossing and the circumcision happens at the border crossing. Uh, Moses presumably could have had Gershom circumcised while he was in Midian, but he doesn't do that. But it's when he's uh, entering into the land where Israel then resided, into the land of Goshen, that's when the circumcision happens. So it's, there's a parallel in that sense. There's a border crossing and circumcision takes place at the border between uh, a place of sojourning or exile and the land of Israel's dwelling. When we think about the various signs of Israel's life, the various markers of its identity, a number of those seem to serve the purpose of protecting Israel with God's presence in their midst. So if we think about the temple, for instance, the temple is set up on the site of the threshing floor where the arm of God is stayed in its judgment against Israel following David's sin. We can think about the work of the Levites and the priests in Leviticus and Numbers and elsewhere where the glory of God or breaks out against the people and they have to intervene. The um, sacrifices seem to serve a similar purpose as well. It's protecting you in that situation where God's presence is in your midst. And circumcision then, I think, would be related in part to their situation in the land and their presence in a realm that is seen as holy, that has a particular status and they have a status relative to it. Outside of the land, they're like a wild tree. They don't have to be pruned with circumcision to the same degree. When circumcision is first given in chapter 17, it's just before the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. God is about to come into that situation and those who are not prepared with their flesh cut off, um, then the flesh of the foreskin cut off, they will be cut off with all flesh. And so it seems to be a battening down of the hatches in preparation for divine judgment. Likewise in Exodus chapter 4. And so the waiting during the wilderness would be until that period where God is about to lead that judgment into the land. I also wonder whether we should see that period in the wilderness as connected with Israel's own infancy. Um, that they are born through the crossing of the Red Sea after the birth pangs of the plagues and other things that God's first Israel is God's firstborn. And then they're led through the wilderness. And then as they enter the promised land, um, in this period five times eight, 40 years, then they are circumcised in preparation for that. And there's also a symmetry between that and the original Passover. Um, circumcision seems to be connected to the Passover. You have to be circumcised in order to participate in the Passover. And they don't seem to have celebrated that in the same way during the wilderness time. But there is this great Passover before they enter into the land. And in preparation for that, they have the mass circumcision at Gilgal. Yeah. Just to pick up on a couple of those points, the, um, part of the rationale for the circumcision at the border of Goshen um, uh, the Lord is already aroused because of the blood of Israel's infants. Uh, there's already blood in the land. The, the avenger is already on the loose. And so entering into the land in those circumstances is dangerous. And as you say, it's a kind of prophylactic against that propitiates the, the avenger who's already active in the land. And so blood has to be shed in, in order to stave, stave off the avenger. The same thing would be happening as they enter into the 
the land prior to the conquest, the Lord is already active. Uh, the Lord is already preparing the land for destruction, and they need to, uh, they need to, uh, as you said, separate themselves or protect themselves from that judgment. They do that by the shedding of blood and circumcision. I also like, I like the idea that Israel's wilderness sojourn, they're, they're actually being treated as kind of in their infancy. It is a new Israel that's coming into the land. Uh, it's a newborn Israel. You've got the old Israel that's counted up. There's a census of the old Israel at the beginning of Numbers as they're coming out of Egypt. They, you have a, a death in the wilderness, and then a new Israel emerges from that, and that's you've got a census at the end of Numbers. This is a newborn Israel coming into the land. And so at that moment of new birth, they're, uh, they're circumcised. Thoughts, Jim? They're not circumcised during the years that they're in estrangement from God. That's the, the years of the wilderness. So, Right. Why were, they not, why were they not circumcised in the wilderness? Why does that have to wait until... Joshua 5, when, they're, when they've finally re-entered the land, rather than circumcise each child as he's born yeah. in the wilderness, right? Well, there are a lot of things that are not said that are true. There are not sacrifices performed during the wilderness time. You don't have the sacrifices listed in Leviticus. They're not done. You don't have the annual sacrifice is done. They're just not done. They can't be done because you don't have access to the land where you get the stuff that you have to do. And those things have to wait till you come into the land. So somehow or other, th this is one of those things that I found studying the law that we don't have all the details about. We don't have all the links to put it all together and form a complete picture of, but we get implications for. Uh, we don't get all the reasons why they don't do circumcision, but we know they didn't do it. And that's part of not doing the sacrificial system as a whole. So you, are you saying that none of the sacrifices were done or certain ones were not done? I'm saying none of them were done. I'm saying Israel was like a Gentile nation for the 40 years in the wilderness. And that's kind of a new thought with me, and I'm not sure exactly <laughs> where the boundaries are. I mean, what, one thing that occurs to me is that you do have a rule about, you know, if you're going to eat meat in the wilderness, you need to come and offer it as a offer an animal as a peace offering. You can't just you can't just butcher the butcher the animal apart from the tabernacle. So what you're saying would imply that they're they are living basically living on manna for 38 years, and they're not a, they're they're vegetarians for 38 years. Is that what you're? Would that be one implication of what you're saying? Kind of. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's interesting. I, I I wouldn't have thought that that was the case, but that I had another thought that was more directly relevant to the uh, to the question. It's interesting that you do have a mass circumcision as they enter the land, rather than I mean, when they're in Goshen, presumably at eight days, each individual infant boy is being circumcised. 
on the eighth day of his life. Once they're in the land, the same thing is happening. But then when they first enter the land, you have this mass circumcision, which resembles the the origination of circumcision. It's like a, it's like a re, re, uh, recapitulation of Genesis 17, when you have the whole of Abraham's household is circumcised at one time. Um, and then after that, each individual infant boy is circumcised. Uh, it, it's a reinstitution of circumcision as such, um, with the whole nation coming under circumcision, which, you know, that would give some support to your idea that they're in kind of a Gentile holding pattern for 40 years, and then they enter into the land, and then, they're, then they are elevated or put into the status of a, of a priestly people. Also wonder whether we should connect the 40 years in the wilderness with the 40 days after childbirth um, before being presented in the temple. Mm -hmm. So Israel is in a, Israel has given birth to a new Israel. Is that the, is that the kind of? Well, Israel has been given, they've um, come to birth through the womb of um, Egypt and through the Red Sea. Oh. And now um, they're waiting for 40 yeah, years and then entering into the holy place. Yeah, yeah. I have to think about how that how the pattern fits, but that the 40 year 40 day connection would suggest there's something there. The second question has to do with uh, Moses leprous hand. We're talking about leprous hands. Uh, here's the question. Why does Exodus 4 discuss Moses hand becoming white in between the rod becoming a serpent and the discussion of the Nile being turned to blood? But in Exodus 7, there's no mention of him actually performing any leprosy sign before Pharaoh. And that passage moves straight from the serpents, the rod becoming a serpent, to the Nile being turned to blood. If the sign of leprosy is understood to refer to some other plague, doesn't that fit poorly with Exodus 4, which appears to indicate that the serpent and leprosy will come before the sign against the Nile? So, referring to the scene at the burning bush, Exodus 4, where Moses is receiving signs that are supposed to convince the elders of Israel that, that the Lord has appeared to him and that he's been designated to lead the people out of Egypt. Uh, he's given three signs. He casts his rod, his staff down, and then it turns into a serpent. He picks it up and it turns back into a staff. If they don't believe that sign, the Lord says, I'll give you a second sign. He takes his hand, he puts his hand into his bosom uh, and draws it out and it's leprous like snow. He puts his hand back into his bosom and draws it out and it's, his flesh is restored. And then he's given another sign where he pours out water, it's turned to blood. So those are the three signs that he's given in Exodus 4. And the question has to do with the compatibility of those three signs and what actually happens in Exodus 7 uh, when he first appears before Pharaoh. And we seem to jump over the middle sign, which is the leprosy sign. You have this contest of staffs where Moses throws down his staff, it turns to a serpent. The, the uh, uh, magicians of Egypt are able to replicate that but Moses' staff gobbles up the staffs of the, or the staves of the uh, magicians of Egypt. Uh, but then the first, the first uh, plague is not leprosy, as we might expect from the three signs, but it's the Nile being turned to blood, which is the third of the signs that, that um, Moses was given. So that's the, that's the question that's being asked, just to fill it out a bit more. Uh, Jim raised the question, what is leprosy? And Jim is going to answer that question since he raised it. 
is dropped out of Jim's mind. Jim did a great deal of research on this and is gone. Well, we know what it's not, right? It's not, it's not modern leprosy. No, it's not. You're right, Peter. <laughs> it's not the highly contagious kind of leprosy that where people's limbs decay, yeah. uh, their facial features decay, their digits, toes decay. That's not what's being talked about. We can look at Leviticus 13, which describes the diagnosis for skin disease or leprosy, and it doesn't match those symptoms. It's a flaking skin. It's uh, skin that's where the underlying flesh is broken through. You're diagnosing according to different colors of the hairs that are growing out of this flaking skin or out of the the uh, open flesh that's there. So it's it's some kind of some uh, something more like psoriasis or a, a scab that's uh, broken out on the skin. It's not it's not the kind of leprosy that uh, that we think of. That's what's in view in Leviticus, and uh, presumably that's what's in view here. It's the same Hebrew term here and elsewhere in the Bible, it's not talking about the, the leprosy that we think of. So the, the kind of contagion that uh, the leprosy laws are worried about is not physical, biological contagion, but a ceremonial contagion. The one description we do have of it is in Numbers 12, where um, Miriam is afflicted with leprosy. And it's described as the flesh of a child that comes out dead from the mother's womb and their flesh is half consumed. Right. But it's also described there as the white like snow, I think, in that same passage. You have the same same, uh, same description that you have here in Exodus 4. One, ans- one part of the answer to the question is, uh, this doesn't answer the whole thing, but then Exodus 4, the signs that the Lord is given at the, giving at the beginning of Exodus 4 are signs that are designed to convince Israel that the Lord has appeared to Moses. And when Moses meets with the elders by, before the end of Exodus 4, he does, he's, he's said to do the signs. It doesn't describe which signs he's doing. Presumably he does all three of those signs because those are the ones that the Lord has given him to do. Uh, and that persuades them that the Lord has appeared. And so, they, um, so the, the signs that, he does, that he's given are done. They're, not done. they're not all done before Pharaoh, but they are done before the elders, which is what which is what the, the intention was. But that just that raises the question of why, before the elders, you would do all three of those signs, but for, before Pharaoh, you'd do the staff sign and the, uh, the sign of water turned to blood, but not the sign of the leprous hand. Why is that one excluded? Why, why doesn't he do that in front of Pharaoh like the other one, like the other ones? That's important here to think about the fact that they are signs, that they have a meaning to them. It's not just mere displays of magical power or something that we might think about as a displaying of God's ruling over the natural world. The picking up of the snake, which I think is the main sign there, it's not so much casting down the rod and it's turning into a snake, it's the picking up of the snake that God's control over this serpent of Pharaoh is going to be displayed in making the heart of Pharaoh hard like that rod and then using that rod for his glory that God has mastery over this great tyrant. And then when we think about the final sign, the final sign is that God has remembered the suffering of his people, that he has seen the blood of their infants that have been cast into the river that you can't see in the river itself it's as if all the bodies have been covered up, but God has seen that um, shedding of innocent blood and he will avenge um, that blood. 
And so it's being poured out as a remembrance upon the land. The land is going to be judged for the water of the river that has had the infants within it. And then that suggests to us that whatever the central sign is, the sign of leprosy, it's something that's supposed to be a message to Israel to have some symbolic meaning about God's relationship to their condition um, and how he sees their state. Right, and just to highlight the on the first sign, the um, I think you're right that the the key thing is that the serpent Pharaoh is a, a leviathan. He's a sea serpent in other passages of scripture, and the rod is cast down. The rod, the serpent becomes a rod in Moses' hand. That's not just control over power over Pharaoh, but it's Pharaoh himself being used as an instrument for Moses' kingship, as it were. The staff is a you know, the staff is a staff of a shepherd, or the staff is a scepter of a king. And Moses is the one who's the shepherd, who's shepherding Israel through the wilderness. Pharaoh himself becomes a staff in Moses' hand to guide the people to, uh, do, to, do, the Lord's, uh, to do the Lord's purposes. But I think that the hand is significant in the whole passage. You have, uh, by my count, there are 12 uses of the word hand uh, in the section of the beginning of end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, that includes several references to the Lord's hand, the Lord's hand being stretched out against Egypt. First of all, Pharaoh's hand. Uh, Israel is under Pharaoh's hand. The Lord is going to stretch out his hand in order to release Israel from Pharaoh's hand. They're going to come out under compulsion or under the hand, which might mean under the hand of the Lord's protection, or it might mean under the hand of the Lord's vengeance against Pharaoh. Uh, and then when you get to the beginning of chapter 4, you have uh, multiple references to the hand of Moses. So the Lord's hand is going to be stretched out, but Moses stretches out his hand to take up this, the serpent and becomes a staff. Moses himself becomes an instrument of the Lord's judgments, and he is an extension of the Lord's hand and carrying out judgments against Pharaoh. So the fact that it's his hand that's that's turned leprous, I think, is significant because Moses' hand is so significant in the passage. Uh, the other thing that um, uh, seems to be linked up with this, this is not exactly in the chapter that you mentioned with um, the other, another leprosy incident in uh, Numbers 12, but the previous chapter, when Moses complains to the Lord that the Lord has left him with the uh, task of caring for this nursing infant, Israel, he's like a nursemaid who has to carry Israel through the wilderness. He talks about putting Israel like an, uh, like a baby in the in the bosom of the baby is in a bosom of the nurse. Uh, that's that's the way that uh, Moses is caring for caring for uh, Israel. The bosom is the same word that's used here. So there's a, a you're talking about a you got this connection between the hand being put placed in the bosom, uh, the infant being placed in the bosom. It's uh, and I, it leads me to think that there's some. Specific, the fact that it's left out when Moses appears before Pharaoh suggests that there's a particular message to Israel here. The fact that you've got this 12-fold use of the word hand also gives a kind of hint of an Israel connection with the hand of Moses. Uh, there's something about, something a message to Israel. Uh, Israel being brought into, being cared for and brought into the Lord's protection and care like a nursing infant by its nursemaid. Uh, maybe Israel being cleansed of uh, defilement. The second stage of the sign is the key one, then the fact that uh, the, the hand is cleansed when it's brought into the bosom of Moses, then uh, that might suggest that Israel, the, through this process of Exodus, the Lord is uh, not just bringing plagues on Egypt, but he's cleansing Israel uh, 
purifying Israel of all the diseases and the uncleannesses of Egypt. Well, one, one possibility here is le leprosy, as you've explained, Jim, is the flesh breaking through the outside layer of skin. So it's, right. it's flesh being shown and things that emerge from the flesh or when flesh emerges, that's what causes uncleanness. That's, that's the death nature that's coming in. And uh, what we perhaps have here with Moses' sign is a sign of Israel's, if we, if we make the connections that I've suggested between the hand and Israel, then perhaps what we have is a sign of Israel's own uncleanness, their own unclean hearts. He puts his hand next to his heart in his bosom, as it were, yeah. uh, and it turns leprous. His flesh is exposed, but then it, he places it in again and it's cleansed. So there's a, a kind of a death and resurrection motif or a, perhaps we could think that through the Exodus, the Lord is going to circumcise the hearts of Israel. He's going to cleanse their hearts, that that's part of the new covenant that he's going to make with them. A leprous house. I mean, how, how does leprosy apply to everything else? That's the question. One thing that is interesting as we look in Leviticus in the laws concerning leprosy is the way it's spoken of as a plague. Mm -hmm. And Israel's house, as with Egypt's house, is a leprous one. It's been struck with, and it will be struck with the various plagues. Israel experiences the first plagues along with Egypt. And it's only as they're delivered from that, that there is this division made between Goshen and the land of the Egyptians. Israel will be delivered from the leprous house. They'll be cleansed, but Egypt and its house will be brought down. And when we look at the laws concerning leprosy, there are a number of similarities with the practice of the Passover, the place of hyssop and sprinkling and the lamb. All these sorts of elements suggest that Israel and Egypt are being dealt with as leprous houses, but Israel, unlike Egypt, will be cleansed from its leprosy. Cool. There is a possibility that, in my mind, that we could work out some kind of, some kind of sequence the fact that you're given, the fact that Moses is given these three signs in this order—that's this part of the part of the questioner's puzzle. But maybe we should think about it instead of thinking those have to be replicated in the order in that order before Pharaoh. Maybe we should think about it instead as a kind of a, a, a an inversion, a chiastic inversion. So the last sign that Moses is given is the water to blood. The first plague is the water to blood. Uh, the leprosy represents the kind of deliverance from. Uh, the plagues of Egypt that you're described, Alistair. And then the culmination is actually Moses being able to control Pharaoh, the, the serpent, the serpent being dashed and cut to pieces in the, in, the, in the sea. Moses stretching out his hand over the sea. He's stretching out his staff over the sea and causing it to divide. And then it's closing up over Pharaoh. So maybe the, the three signs in Exodus 4 are previewing the, the plagues that are going to come, but those plagues are going to be uh, worked out in reverse order. Maybe we could work out some kind of chiastic arrangement there. The last question I want to raise is this. Do you think the story of David and Goliath is the backdrop to the strongman parables in the Gospels? Luke's uh, parable in Luke 11, 21 and 22, I think is a summary of the David and Goliath story. This uh, questioner says, I'd like to write a seminary paper on this connection, so please give me as many resources as possible. Uh-huh. Trying to get us to do uh, research on a paper for him or her. So the passage he's referring to is this in uh, Luke 11, verses 21 and 22. When a strong man fully armed guards his own homestead, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away 
takes away from him all his armor on which he'd relied and distributes his plunder. And the uh, suggestion is that that's, that has a specific reference back to the David Goliath story. Perhaps the connection that's being made is the stripping of the armor. We know that uh, David does take the sword of Goliath at least, beheads Goliath and then stores it away in the tabernacle for later. And you have a contest between a strong man and one who is stronger. I'd have a question of whether we have the initial scenario in this little parable actually fits with the David Goliath story. The strong man who's fully armed, that fits with Goliath, guards his own homestead, his possessions are undisturbed. And then someone comes along to, uh, to uh, plunder his house. The stronger man comes along to plunder his house. So if that's, if that's kind of a David and Goliath story, is there a sense in which Goliath is guarding a homestead and he is plundered by David? Maybe we could think about it this way. I mean, the, in the initial setting of the David-Goliath incident, obviously is Saul's monarchy, Saul's reign, Saul's failure, Saul's failure leads to uh, a reversal of the conquest with Philistine incursions. The place where David and Goliath meet is well into the territory that belongs to Judah. So the Philistines have taken over a large chunk of the land because of Saul's failures and sins. And so David isn't just fighting this hero. David is fighting to recover the land that belongs to Israel, a land that Philistines, the Philistines had been claiming as their own and ruling, and then David uh, plunders that back for Israel, as it were. So maybe, perhaps there's a, there would be a, a connection to, uh, to fill out there. I, I would tend to think that uh, the Philistine possession there, however it's phrased, would be the city that the Philistine Lord has. Yeah. So Goliath is the hero of Gath. So you're talking yeah. about Gath, yeah. And uh, so what I would, would would want to do is look back at Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament. You would have a lot of, uh, I mean, you could look at uh, Rambam and Ramban and, uh, and lots of Jewish expositors and see what they say. Do they say that? Do they say that's what the story's about or not? Uh, because that's kind of what this gentleman is assuming that, uh, that the assumption is that Jesus is in that position. Yeah. And if not, then He's got a lot more to do. <laughs> For his seminary paper, yeah. yeah. But just, just to pick up on the, the city connection, uh, after David kills Goliath, uh, this is 1 Samuel seventeen fifty two. the men of Judah, Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley to the gates of Ekron and slain Philistines lay along the way from to Sha'arim, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. So there is a plunder. David takes the weapons of Goliath and places them in his tent. Uh, there's a, but there's a pursuit, there's a plunder of the camp, and there is a, they're not just recovering territory that belonged to Israel, but they're going into Philistine territory all the way to the Philistine cities, to the gates of Ekron, it says. So there is a, there is a, there is a city connection there, as you were suggesting. When we think about the 
situation in the Gospels more generally, Christ comes into a land that is largely populated. I mean, everywhere he goes to the synagogues and elsewhere, he encounters evil spirits. Israel itself is being populated by demons um, and by the um, forces of Beelzebub. And so when Christ is casting out these various um, these various demons, he's cleaning or sweeping out the possessed house of Israel. Um, we could think of it also maybe against the background of David again, but David relative to Saul, um, maybe primarily. There are themes there that maybe you could connect, that David is anointed by the Spirit, then he goes to help deal with the evil spirit that's afflicting Saul. And then um, Goliath stands against Israel for 40 days, and then he's defeated by David. So maybe David is that mighty man who cleans out the house of Israel that's been occupied. Um, we could also think of the way that there are themes here that are repeated elsewhere. So the sweeping out of the house is also seen in the parable of the woman with the ten coin, the lost coins, um, or the lost coin of the ten. And she sweeps out her house to try and find it. And maybe the house is a reference to the temple and to Israel more generally as symbolized by that, that it's become possessed. But now Christ is driving out the possessing forces. The question is, are they going to um, keep it clean or are they going to just allow in these evil spirits to enter into the house again? And so there would be some Davidic connections there yeah. with Goliath as part of the picture. But I think it's a broader thing than that. Yeah. Yeah. So and that, that's the specific thing that Jesus is referring to. The stronger man or the strong man is uh, Satan. The stronger man is Jesus. He's uh, coming to confront him. And that, that does, there's satanic overtones to Goliath. He's wearing a scale armor, which is uh, serpent-like armor. He dies by head trauma. He's got a head wound and his head is cut off. He's the hero of a, an invading force. So uh, those those kind of connections are already there in the original story, which would make David and Goliath a, a, uh, a fitting template for Jesus' conflict with Satan and the demons. The other thing we could think about in the context of 1 Samuel is, is the way that Saul, as it were, picks up the spirit of Goliath. He becomes the man defined by the spear, just as Goliath was, and he's the man with the the large armor. David doesn't wear that armor originally, but he becomes a stronger than Saul and stronger than Goliath. He's the one who eventually will wield Goliath's sword, even though he doesn't wear Saul's armor in chapter 17. He can take on um, Goliath's sword later on in the story. And so he becomes the one who kills 10,000s next to um, Saul's thousands. And so maybe there is a, a stronger man theme playing out there and a sort of demonic figure in Goliath. He's the one like Nahash, who's the serpent that attacks the people, um, dressed in scaly armor and defeated with a head wound. But then Goliath's character is taken on by Saul, and Saul himself is overcome by David, ultimately. Right. Yeah, and the, the um, larger context for Luke 11, I should have read a few more verses before the particular verses that were cited by the questioner. This is in the midst of a conflict over uh, Jesus casting out demons and the accusation that he's casting out demons by the power of the devil. 
And he answers by saying that he doesn't cast out demons by the power of the devil, but by the finger of God. That's a reference to the spirit. And then immediately, that's in uh, Luke eleven twenty. then immediately the uh, short parable, the strong man and the stronger man. So the stronger man is the man who's equipped by the spirit. He's the one who's empowered by the spirit to fight the strong man. Uh, by the time we get to First Samuel 17, that's now David. That was Saul. Saul was the man who was equipped by the Spirit, but the Spirit has left Saul. The Spirit has come on David. Uh, Saul is instead afflicted with an evil spirit. So the conflict between David and Saul is, we don't have to uh, import a spiritual battle into that. That's, that's already in the original text. David... Um, clothed by the Spirit of God, and Saul afflicted by an evil spirit. That's part of the contest. So that, yeah, that whole, uh, Luke um, Luke 11 has that, brings that that conflict between the Spirit of God and the Spirit, uh, and evil spirits. That would be another connection with the uh, David-Goliath episode. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.